you know, every time I made a decision, I would run through that framework, you know, is this in the sole and best interest of the plan and plan participants? Is this a prudent action? Um, am I following my plan documents? Um, am I holding my plan assets in trust? And am I, am I ensuring that I'm paying only reasonable plan expenses? And if you have this framework and you're approaching each decision with this framework in mind, you really set yourself up for success. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits to save lives, save dollars, and save your talent. Welcome everyone to Broken Benefits. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and so excited about today's interview with uh, Chris Deacon. Uh, just by way of background, Chris was a director for one of the largest health plans in the country, almost 900,000 lives. While she ran uh, this health plan as the director for three years, during those three years, she was able to help her health plan save over $3 billion. That's billion with a B. She was also a deputy attorney general and a special assistant to the governor of New Jersey. Chris has uh, the training. She's she's a lawyer by training, which is a little bit um, a little bit rare within our space. And we're so excited to be able to have her today to share some of the critical items that she was able to do in order to get this great success. And with that, Chris, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome today. Thanks for having me, Lee. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, absolutely, my pleasure. So. Jumping right in, um, one of the things that is, uh, I think, critical to solving a problem is finding the best way to understand it. And I find that there is, even for people who are very focused on solving the problems, there's a ton of variability in how people understand the the problem that they're that they're trying to solve. And I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through how you deconstructed and approached uh, the challenges in healthcare. Sure, great question, and it's and it's usually where I start. Um, as you can see from my background, I didn't really grow up in healthcare. I didn't grow up in the HR space or the benefit space. Um, I was a corporate re restructuring attorney and found myself in healthcare several years ago, um, running, like you said, one of the largest health plans in the country with 820,000 lives. And I very quickly realized that I needed to, um, you know, I couldn't know all of the things. I couldn't know every in and out of, you know, what every acronym is, what every quality metric was, what every um, institute, you know, and uh, peer reviewed journal article I should read. But what I could do to make smarter purchasing decisions and decisions for the health plan was come up with a framework for approaching decision making. And um, I kept, uh, you know, the Department of Labor handbook sort of on my desk as a fiduciary guide um, uh, in, in guiding my decisions. And so I really, you know, built this fiduciary framework with which I approached every decision that I made, um, you know, just could recite, you know, every time I made a decision, I would run through that framework, you know, is this in the sole and best interests of the plan and plan participants? Is this a prudent action? Um, am I following my plan documents? Um, am I holding my plan assets in trust? And am I, am I ensuring that I'm paying only reasonable plan expenses? And if you have this framework and you're approaching each decision with this framework in mind, you really set yourself up for success um, in all that mm. you do as a health plan administrator. Well, that's, that's awesome. So here's another thing too. A lot of people who run benefits are 
our fiduciaries over the funds. And as you just mentioned, you know, we need to be prudent. We need to make sure the funds are used for their value or for their, you know, their benefit. What do you think are some of the, like the common misconceptions we have about being fiduciaries? What are some of the, maybe some of the common blunders we might, you know, be, be committing to, to kind of not be great fiduciaries that maybe we don't even realize? Right. I think probably the most common is not understanding who is and who is not a fiduciary. Um, and with that, you know, comes um, a mistaken assumption that you've outsourced that legal liability when you hire perhaps a, a health benefits consultant or broker or a third party administrator, um, or even if you're fully insured, you know, your carrier. Um, but if you uh, sponsor, if you're an, you know, sponsor an employer sponsored health plan, um, there, ha there has to be someone within your organization that retains fiduciary liability, whether that's the CFO, the CEO, or a fiduciary listed in a plan document. And while you might, um, you know, sort of have some functions that, um, you know, let's say your third party administrator exercises discretion over and therefore could have some fiduciary liability that doesn't abrogate you of really being responsible for managing how that duty is carried out by a third party. So I think that's the biggest misconception is thinking that, you know, if somebody else is performing um, a set of discretionary duties, you're sort of off the hook. Um, which is just not the case. Even if you get someone to accept contractual fiduciary liability, um, you know, whether that be your carrier, PBM, or consultant, or some other third party, it's still on you as a fiduciary to oversee how their duties are undertaken. So it's a liability that you can't really escape. Um, but I also think it's an opportunity because with that fiduciary responsibility, um, you can you can throw your weight a around a little bit because of sort of the the importance of the duties that you have to undertake. And so if if you have a carrier or a third party um, that challenges your, for example, your right to data or your mm. right to transparency or to demand um, information on the prices that your health plan is paying, you can absolutely fire back that I am a fiduciary, my legal, you know, my personal liability is, uh, you know, on the line here. And I demand um, that information, you know, just as an example as of the power that being a fiduciary carries with it. Wow. Now, I almost hate to ask, what, uh, what are the penalties for failing in that duty? So um, a breach of a fiduciary liability um, can carry with it, um, again, personal liability. Um, and civil penalties for, you know, either restoring the plan, um, returning profit. It depends on how the fiduciary duty was breached, right? If you're not overseeing the plan and as a result, overpayments are made, or if you, um, you know, engage in some sort of self-dealing or allow a vendor with a conflict of interest um, to act in a in a capacity that negatively impacts your plan, you're going to have um, you're going to have a personal liability to make that plan whole. And I think this is this is really interesting. And certainly, when I talk to the C-suite, this is where the ears really perk up, um, even if their eyes are glazed wow. over and the rest of the talk. <laughs> but um, DNO policies, right? 
they've gotten okay. uh, the the price of DNO policies over the last several years with really the explosion of 401k litigation in class actions based on unreasonable fees and failure to disclose and conflicts of interest in the 401k space have caused fiduciary liability um, premiums or you know coverage for fiduciary liability to either become unreasonably expensive or they just get carved out altogether. Um, or in some cases, what used to be like a essentially like a zero dollar deductible for that type of liability, I've seen in some cases it's now up to ten or fifteen million dollars before the coverage oh. even starts kicking in. So go, you know, I think that we tend to think of um, the benefit space as very risk averse, um, and I think that that's fine, but. I, I hope that what people are starting to understand and professionals in the space are starting to understand is that the real risk, the real legal risk and fiduciary risk lies in not doing anything. It shouldn't, the risk shouldn't be doing something mm. new and different going forward. The risk should be seen as status quo and sort of allowing health plan, you know, and costs to continue to rise the way they are. Wow. Now, I'm like that CEO. My, my ears are kind of perked up here. Let's just, let's just say for a second that I'm terrified and I, and I want to do something to help insulate myself against, against all this risk. What do I do? What are, what are the first steps that I take? Especially when you say vendors who have a, uh, who have a conflict of interest, like I, from everything I can tell, we swim in an ocean of vendors with a conflict of interest. So how in the world, you know, in this, in this ocean I'm swimming in, what's, what's my life jacket? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the first step, right. And like in anything in life is you have to acknowledge that you have a problem, Lee, right. You have to pull, <laughs> you have to pull your head out of the sand. Step one. Uh, okay. Step one, pull your head out of the sand and recognize that yes, it is a tremendous undertaking, but not, it, it's not one um, that should be scary. It's one again, full of both obligation and opportunity. So um, I, I, you know, I've put together a number of checklists, and I think you know there are there are a lot of things that are consistent across those checklists. And first, have you identified who are your plan fiduciaries in writing? Right. So you're asking like, what can you do to protect yourself? And I think that you know I sort of listed those five principles off, and they seem sort of philosophical, but what do they mean in practice? You, have you identified all of your planned fiduciaries in writing? Have you asked your vendors to either um, agree to or or not um, whether or not they hold a fiduciary obligation underneath, you know, under their contract? Um, and create a list of policies and procedures with respect to evaluation of conflict of interest. Disclose, for example, if you are a carrier and you're my carrier, please disclose if you have an ownership interest in any of the providers that you're paying on my behalf. I think what we've seen, and I use this example because I think it's really pertinent, um, you know, carriers are purchasing providers um, and the provider, I, I think Optum acquired like 10,000 physicians last year, if, if I'm remembering the stat um, correctly. In many of these cases, the carrier that you are paying to um, negotiate rates and pay claims on your behalf also owns the provider that they're paying, 
right? So if you think about the potential for conflict here, if you own the entity that you are responsible for negotiating with on behalf of your employers, where is your incentive to negotiate a lower price, right? Um, so I don't know that we can necessarily as HR wow. officers solve this, um, this dynamic that now exists in the market. Like, am I, am I as an employer able to sort of disaggregate this and preclude all conflicts of interest? Probably not. But what I am able to do is get full visibility into the conflicts so that I can protect myself against it. Disclosure of conflicts of interest, transparency, sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, I think it gets you, um, it gets you part of the way there. Um, so a lot of written or written policies and procedures, you must have access to all of your healthcare claims data um, and your okay. pharmacy data. Absolutely, bottom line. Um, you know, and there. There are several other things, sort of like tangible things I think, you know, uh, the C-suite can do and CHROs can do um, to mm. take those principles and actually apply them in a really tangible way. This is great. Are, are there a couple others to just come sure. off the top of the head real quick? Yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to like bore you with just a, a rattling <laughs> of, of lists, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple couple other items. Just lightning round me real quick. Yeah, we'll yeah. Go to the next so um, when you're talking about um, the prudence of your healthcare decisions, so you need a framework for evaluating the prudent, like prudent purchasing. So another great okay. example, um, and I can tell a per personal anecdote. When I first started working for the state, um, and one of my first projects was running a TPA RFP. You know, we had a large budget mm -hmm. hole to fill. This is a, you know, PBM and TPA re-procurement was part of the way we got there. And I was told that one of the ways or the primary way we evaluated our TPA partner was through um, a discount analysis. And I told okay. our consultant, well, a discount off of what? Like a discount, like how do I know the price? Because oh. I would, you know, remember I was somewhat new, new to this. And they said, oh, no, no, we don't know the price. We just know the discount. And, and, you know, I was just like mind blown that we could be spending as a state $5 billion, and that's with a B, on healthcare claims through a system with which we had no insight to the price and no contractual guarantees over the price. So I, after much convincing, we changed the model to do a unit cost analysis with a unit cost guarantee year over year to you know, ensure that our unit costs weren't going up. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, and, and then I guess you know, the last was, not last, there, there are more, but another um, significant one was the procurement of our PBM um, partner, um, pharmacy, benef pharmacy benefit manager. Um, we were never really, you know, we weren't improving um, as much as we knew we could financially in our standard bidding process. And so, again, this is sort of the application of that prudent purchasing standard or right. reasonableness of plan expenses. We engaged in a, a creative procurement methodology called a reverse auction, which really unleashes market forces um, against, you know, the big PBMs for us because they were the ones that could handle the business, the size of the business. 
and they bid right. on each other, you know, and, and we were able to unmask pricing so that they could go around another round and, and really, you know, lower prices again to get more aggressive to win the state's business. And we went three rounds, ultimately um, saving, uh, you know, over $2 billion over the course of that five-year wow. contract term. So, um, wow. you know, you can really effectuate major change um, with putting some of these principles into practice. Wow. That, that's incredible. So now I'm thinking, okay, you came into this program. Um, you're, you're now the new director. You're learning about all these, you know, conflicts of interest, the vendors and everything that you need to purchase. What was the, you know, what was the biggest goal that you had during that period? What was it that you wanted to, you know, achieve as you were embarking on this? Um, so I, I took my responsibility to be a good steward, and I use that term uh, not lightly, um, steward of taxpayer mm -hmm. dollars. Um, you know, and so for me, that was taxpayer money because you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a resident of the state of New Jersey. My children attend the schools. I know the tax burden mm -hmm. that working, um, uh, you know, New Jersey residents felt. And so uh, it was it wasn't necessarily just about cost reduction, but it was how do we improve um, the benefits we were offering um, because when you, it didn't take a lot to sort of peel back the layers of the onion to recognize that we were paying an incredible amount for really low value care um, in some settings. You know, if you looked at our C-section rate, for example, at one particular hospital, our elective C-section rate was close to 50%. Wow. How, how on earth were, were we paying um, a premium, wow. you know, to this hospital for making our moms and babies un, you know, undergo unnecessary C-sections. And, and so I think it was, again, being a good steward of taxpayer dollars, but that didn't necessarily mean having a sole laser focused on cost. It meant having a laser focus on, um, on cost and quality, i.e., you know, value. Are we getting the value, you know, are we getting what um, we're paying for for a healthcare dollar? And I think that most benefits leaders struggle with this. You know, when you're looking at hospital prices, I think RAN 4.0 just came out um, not too long ago, as did updated leapfrog scores. We're paying an mm. incredible amount, multiples of CMS for, for care that is either, you know, not the highest on the quality spectrum or incrementally not better than, you know, hospitals that are charging, uh, you know, half of what some are. So the, the variability in cost and quality was a big problem because when you have that kind of variability, you know, you're not spending the taxpayer dollars prudently. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So now you've discovered that there's this high variability. What can you do to start controlling for that? Do we, do we go to our insurance carrier? Do we change our plan design? Do we buy a new app? Like what do we do to start <laughs> tackling that? Um, I don't think you buy a new app as much as <laughs> I would hope that technology and as much as, you know, private equity and venture capital is out there looking for the, the technological silver bullet, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I do think that technology will play a role in um, in the solutions, and it, and it get, it's not the solution. It's 
a, you know, we have a structural problem. And so therefore right. we need a structural solution that's going to require a lot of rebuilding, mm -hmm. a lot of really hard um, discussions and conversations. And, and when we're talking about how much we're spending on healthcare, you know, $4 trillion, almost 20% of GDP, there will be some pain, mm. right? Like there will be some pain, not from a patient perspective, but, you know, perhaps the best use of our, um, you know, public healthcare dollars is not in creating another glass atrium um, in the middle of a city, you know, with private uh, five-star hotel rooms for every, every um, hospital admission. Like at some point we have to um, take a look at what we've built and decide how we're going to I, you know, I, I say blow, blow this, uh, you know, insert explicative here up and rebuild what we would want to see. So, so going back to your question, cause I kind of digress, but what can we, what can we do to start addressing variability and cost and quality? Um, yeah. I think absolutely we have to hit hard and hit fast on hospital prices, hospitals. Okay. And I'm not talking about your rural struggling hospitals that absolutely need either you know support or they need some sort of structural fix because but i'm right. talking about you know i'm presently sitting in an office in manhattan surrounded by some of the most egregious billing um in prices mm. in the country um it's unsustainable it's unjustifiable and we need political leaders to grow a backbone and tell you know figure out a solution to high hospital prices and when I say regulators, I don't necessarily mean like rate regulation. I mean, stop giving them a free pass on their nonprofit status. Stop giving them a free pass on their capital expansion projects that are costing taxpayers and commercial payers, mm -hmm. um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And so that's, you know, it's short term, but, yeah. you know, long term. I think more from a structural perspective, what we can do as employers is incentivize high value care. What does that mean? Incentivize utilization at high value primary care settings. So whether that's direct primary care, advanced primary care, um, you know, and it's, it's interesting that I see a future of healthcare where the primary care relationship is restored um, and we talk about it in a future state when in fact it's actually a hearkening back to the true roots of medicine right it's mm -hmm. relational it's personal it's local but mm -hmm. in this relationship you now have a trusted uh and aligned financially aligned um partner um to control the downstream costs of medical care right so if my right. primary care physician is recommending that i go for um, testing a certain, you know, testing procedure or um, an evaluation for a surgical procedure, I'm going to trust where they tell me to go. And I'm going to incentivize right. that, that, that primary care physician has a, both a financial incentive and a relational um, incentive to send you to a high value provider. The, the surgeon that's, that does 500 knees a year, not five. Right. Um, yeah, so it's wow. a, and I think that's all about, you know, again, realignment of the financial incentives across the employer, the member, and the provider um, to, again, whether it's through plan design, incentives to utilize high value care 
And um, through that, I think we'll start to build structural change into the system. Yeah. What do you think is like the biggest belief we have as, you know, as employers that we, that we get wrong? Oh, there's so many, Lee. Um, oh, oh no. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I mean, I think that I'll go back to another anecdote and story that I, you know, I learned early on. And that was, again, in this TPA RFP process, one of the other means yeah. by which my consultant set, told yeah. us that we were scoring or evaluating potential partners was through what's called a disruption analysis. And a disruption analysis is essentially how many of my members with this carrier versus that carrier versus that carrier are going to have to find another network provider because, you know, the disruption between in and out of network. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if there was a bigger disruption, that was a, a worse score. And if there was disruption over 30%, they were disqualified. And, and I understood um, where they were coming from, but then I, I asked, uh, and honestly asked, well, where's the quality component here? Because if right. that, if that network that, you know, let's say was going to disrupt 30% of my members, um, and their providers, if those 30% were actually really bad providers on a, from a quality perspective, I I'm not, I'm not actually that upset. Yeah. Well, I have to answer the phone a little bit more and there will be some right. noise. Absolutely. But where's the quality component to this? And the response was looked at me like I had two heads. And so this um, is this is the I think the biggest uh, miss that we've had over the last uh, 10, 20 years is that like bigger is better. More access at you know mm -hmm. sort of all costs. I want the broadest, baddest, biggest PPO you can give me. Um, I want my members to be able to go to any doctor they want without any sort of any insurance company, prior auth, utilization management, steerage, nothing in between. Mm. And, and while I mm. know where that sentiment has come from, I don't think that it served us well because now we have members that are accustomed to not having a primary care provider because they don't need one. They just either go to urgent care, or they go to their specialist as they see fit. Um, and as right. you know, healthcare consolidation, both vertical and horizontal has increased, there's increasingly sort of one monolithic entity in a market or a few that are um, sort of providing, you know, they're, they're the imaging center, they're the urgent care, right. they might even be the primary care, and they certainly are the specialist in the hospitals. And they're just, you know, it's throughput. Um, wow. I, I think that that, um, you know, I hope that both employers and employees, probably more importantly, are going to have a willingness to meet us halfway to understand that now that we have the cost and quality data in our hands, we have a duty to do something with it. And we are, yeah. it is incumbent upon us to make sure that you know the places to go to provide high quality, high value care. And in exchange, mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, ensure that we control your costs and we're not going to engage in cost shifting anymore so that you can no longer access care. I'm going to keep your healthcare affordable, but meet me halfway so that I can get you to the best doctors. Um, and and I, I hope that that is in our future. 
No, I I sure do as well. You you mentioned hearkening back and bringing primary care in. What what can we do as employers to make primary care more centric, uh, and and hopefully to bring a resurgence of it? What can we as I mean, I think this is this is one of those areas where we have to have a very realistic understanding of the current marketplace. Um, in in the absence of employer-driven um, primary care relationships. And that is the continued purchase of the large systems of primary care physicians. They're, you know, the number of independent primary care physicians office is rapidly shrinking and COVID has only accelerated that. Hmm. So understanding that, um, that, you know, again, the value, the high value care that is provided in a primary care setting, um, uh, I think is is number one, you have to understand that value and understanding that, you know, 80% of behavioral health care, I think prescriptions come out of a primary care physician's office. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, phys- your primary care physician has two incredibly powerful cost um, sort of, uh, you know, levers in their hands, and that is their referral pad and their prescription pad, right? So if we're just talking about cost. Wow. And, and then if you look at, you know, your members' holistic health and well-being, um, really that's, that's, that's going to be foundational in your primary care. So recognizing, number one, the value. And then how do they, what do they do with that knowledge? In my opinion, knowing that, knowing that the, the, physician, the independent physicians that are largely going away and understanding the dynamic of non-independent physicians that are associated with large health systems, I'm pushing employers to move to a direct contracting model with advanced primary care, um, uh, primary care providers with direct primary care providers that have been tech enabled that are going back to that realignment when the provider now is no longer sort of a vehicle to drive volume to a hospital system, but rather a vehicle to provide high quality care to my members. And whether that's at an on-site mm. clinic or a near site, or even virtual in some cases, um, if you're in a rural setting, a virtual first model, I think that um, we begin to get there. Um, and then you can also pull the levers on the bigger cost downstream, the downstream costs, um, again, through those referral patterns, um, chronic care condition management, hmm. and then certainly the prescription pad. Wow. I, uh, this reminds me of a statistic. I saw this last week that like in the early 1990s, referral rates to specialists were about five or 6%. <laughs> and today they're around 40%. Right. And, um, but you know, hospital admission rates and curing rates and things like that have kind of remained the same. It's, well, I'll, uh, I'll hit you with another uh, statistic, and it was uh, that hospital-affiliated primary care physicians are associated on average, I think it's, um, it's like 500000 in revenue to the hospitals per primary care physician. So they're essentially, you know, they're, they're the funnel, right? Um, if somebody needs a referral to go to a hospital or a specialist, mm. they want you to see the hospital associated primary care physician who can mm. then, yes, you go to our hospital MRI that is going to cost $3,000 versus the freestanding that would cost you 300 or you mm. go to our emergency room or our neonatology or, or what have you. Wow. Um, 
and you know, at the end of the day, yeah, it's a business and we have to recognize that as, as human resource officers and those responsible and entrusted going back to this fiduciary principle, right? Our members don't have this information. They don't get to contract with primary care physicians. They don't get to contract with carriers, hospitals, and, and other third-party providers. They've entrusted, i.e. fiduciary, they've entrusted us with those decisions. So it's really right. important that we make the most of that trust. How do we keep them from resenting us or feeling like we're trying to push them in a way that just is trying to save a buck? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to lead with quality and I don't think that that's just disingenuous because I actually, this is one of those areas, healthcare is one of those areas where if you are spending less, you are likely doing a better job taking care of the health and well-being of your members. Um, but listen, it's an uphill battle because you are fighting a narrative out there. Um, and, and, you know, I've got to say that largely it's, it's self-inflicted harm because we did the, you know, the cost shifting high deductible health plan experiment. And, you know, one, I think like one third of employees are on some sort of high deductible health plan. And I think that, you know, the data is coming back that, you know, when you only have $400 in your savings account on average, and that might have gone down now that a gallon of milk is, you know, $6 and 50 cents at the grocery store, right? You, you know, you don't have $400 to hit your $4,000 out of pocket deductible before your insurance even kicks in. So you either avoid care or mm. you wait, and then you you're seeking it at a high, um, high cost, low value setting. So I think a lot of this is largely self-inflicted. Um, mm. We've engaged in some experiments over the last uh, couple decades that we've learned from. Um, and trust is um, something I think we need to earn back from our employee populations through mm. flawless execution, through um, honesty and integrity in what we've tried and what didn't work and being very honest about that. Um, and, and, you know, through, um, partnerships, you know, this is one of those areas where I think it makes for strange bedfellows, right? Like I mm. was special assistant counsel to governor Christie's office. And by the time I left the health plan, I would say, um, in any public setting that my strongest advocates and, and indeed friends and allies were our public sector labor unions, um, wow. at the end of the day, um, wow. Because, it, you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, right, left or indifferent, you want to, you know, you want to engage in fiscal responsibility, but you, you want what's right for your members. And that means not having unnecessary spine surgeries. That means getting your, your, um, your cops to the highest, you know, rated musculoskeletal folks to do a knee replacement. Um, right. So we are aligned if we can get past that, that initial narrative and really align ourselves up against what is the sort of, I'm not going to say enemy, um, but, you know, potential foe here in truly disruptive change. And that is the status quo. That is hospitals that are going to ride the fee for service train until it, you know, until they can no longer mm -hmm. ride it. Um, <laughs> yep. And, and carriers and insurance companies that want to make as much of their 15% MLR as possible. Um, right. 
And, and so, you know, yeah, I think that we have a lot of work to do in the trust department, but it's, it's a, it's an undertaking that's worth doing. I want to pull the thread a little on what you just said a moment ago on MLRs. Most people believe, uh, Hey, insurance companies want costs to go down, right? Because they bring in premiums from people who buy like an insurance policy and then they pay those premiums back out as claims and they want those claims to be low. I know, you know, for instance, with car insurance, I know that Geico doesn't want to pay like a ton of money to fix my car. Right. And so why doesn't that translate over to health insurance? I think there are a few reasons. I mean, first, we, you just called it out, and that's the, the medical loss ratio, which is just another way of saying for every one healthcare dollar, an insurance company has to pay 85 cents of that dollar on med actual clinical medical costs, and they get 15 cents of that dollar for other things like profit, right? And so if that's the sort of the math, um, and they want to increase profit for shareholders or otherwise, um, then, the, then the dollar, the denominator has to get bigger, right? So mm -hmm. the idea that there is an incentive by insurance carriers to lower costs um, and lower prices is just, you know, is a fundamental misunderstanding. And I think that I'm hopeful that benefits leaders are wise to this, but you asked earlier, what is probably one of the most harmful, you know, uh, misunderstandings. And I think for the American people, this is probably one of the bigger ones. Um, I have mm. spoken to elected leaders and cabinet level officials at the state and federal level, um, or, you know, deputy cabinet at that, that don't understand, or at least didn't understand yeah that carriers and hospitals don't sit on opposite sides of the table and duke it out on your behalf. Absolutely no, that is not the case. They sit on the same side wow. of the table and decide how to divvy up healthcare dollars between them um, and how to, you know, I'm not gonna say how to necessarily inflate costs. Uh, well, no, I will, I'll say that. How to, how to make more money. And if that means that the overall pie has to increase, then that's how it's going to be. I mean, I, oh, I just heard a, a CEO of a, a hospital in Wisconsin talking, and this was in a public setting. And he said, you know, we talk a lot about lowering the total cost of healthcare. There was a question from the audience and he said, we talk a lot about it a lot, but it's not happening. Total cost of care, total healthcare costs, prices, they're not going down. Um, wow. and, and so, and there's nobody challenging that on the other side. If your carrier isn't challenging that for you, you can, as an employer, by engaging in direct contracting, then you can pull the strings. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's a huge misunderstanding that wow. um, needs to be corrected sort of in the general domain, um, because the kabuki theater out there of, you know, the anthems of the world having you know, duking it out with a hospital system over whether or not they're going to be in or out of network next year. It's really a way to get the members in that region behind the fact that they're going to have to pay more for healthcare next year because they scare um, them into thinking 
Mm. You're going to be out of network. You're not going to get access to your OBGYN and have a hospital where you always, or I'm sorry, have a baby where you always thought you were going to at the hospital you had your last. And then, you know, when the carriers come back and say, well, if you want access to, to New York Presbyterian, you know that they charge 400% of CMS and you're going to have to live with those increased premium costs. And, and so it's a way of sort of galvanizing and stealing consumers off to like having to live with price increases. Mm. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but it is absolutely something we need to deal with as an industry. What was the biggest risk that you took while you were trying to make this happen? Cause you, I mean, everybody you were going against were pretty powerful entrenched intermediaries. Um, you know, I would say I'll give you two risks, one that panned out and one that didn't. Um, <laughs> so I think the biggest risk, risk was that first RFP or, and when I say RFP, it's really a contract because our RFPs essentially become the contract with, with our, um, the way that we do public procurement in New Jersey, um, was with the TPA RFP because there were some really what I what I now understand to be revolutionary provisions in that contract, that it was a risk because we didn't know that anybody wow. was going to bid. Um, no cross plan oh. offsetting. Yeah, like no cross plan offsetting. Um, uh, disclosure, uh, certain disclosures and transparency requirements. Um, unit cost guarantee, so no more discount analysis, and you actually had to disclose prices within a geographic region. And then we held you to those prices year over year. Um, so it was really a, a unique RFP with some, uh, you know, what was the lowest, we also had a lowest, um, uh, lower, we could only play the lower of negotiated rate or uh, build rate. And so if a hospital build, and I actually saw this like $600,000, but the agreed upon rate was 2 million, and this happens, <laughs> um, we were only ever contractually required to pay the 600,000. Um, because there are instances where they might've agreed to a G DRG rate for another, um, mm -hmm. another rate. So some, again, some pretty remarkable contract provisions and we did get bidders and it was competitive. Um, mm. But the segue from that um, is the other risk is then taking unpopular positions and uncomfortable positions and holding vendors to account, holding vendors to that contract um, and performance and financial guarantees. Um, you become a really unpopular person when you point out all the things that mm. have room for improvement. Um, so I would say the riskiest thing for me, and you know what, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna say it didn't pan out. It just panned out differently than I had hoped. Um, yeah. but you know, taking on, um, organizations, uh, you know, very large organizations that have been long-term and vendors for 20, 30 plus years with public mm. sector entities is a very challenging and you win some and you lose some. Yeah, no, that's a great. That's a great piece of advice. And the, the items that you added in there are super helpful as well. 
What yeah, and happy to always get... share with you any of those contract provisions. They're public information because it's from a public sector entity. So hey, no, that's that's great. I'm and I'm excited about making that available as well. What um how do you bring stakeholders together to get behind this? Because I'm I imagine you felt pretty lonely sometimes. Um you know, or not I lonely, think, but you felt sort of like uh, you're marching a hard path, right? Yeah, I think so. But the remember that those principles that I chose to live by, and when I say live mm -hmm. by, work by, very early on, um, they were always in sort of a guiding force, right? I didn't have to right. engage in you know, there was a lot of soul searching in many, many decisions, um, especially when COVID hit and it's balancing cost and access and what do we do in the situation that nobody's ever dealt with. But those mm. principles, if they let, if you let them sort of be your North Star, um, you never mm -hmm. stray too far from making the right decision, or at least a decision that is very defensible and can always be supported by, by data and good principles. Um, so, uh, and the other thing I'll say is despite some alienation by particular groups that may have been, uh, disrupted by some of these decisions, I always yeah. had, I always had the support of our labor partners who at the end of the day knew the importance of controlling costs to maintain the sustainability of their benefits and mm. always wanted to do right by their members from a quality um, perspective. That's great. How, how do we design benefits that people love? Oh, easy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, how do we design benefits? So I think you have to, and, and this, is, this is an exercise and a practice, not a sort of check the box. Um, it's a customized approach for each population. So Boeing is not the same as Walmart, is not the same as the 32BJ Health Fund, is not the same as New York or New Jersey firefighters. Um, but recognizing that at the end of the day, these are, this is your mom, this is your dad, this is your child. Um, bringing back the human element of what, what are we doing here? Yes, we are, we're providing a benefit and there's a lot of sort of operational and administrative and financial pieces that go into it. But I think circling back um, to that trust that's been sort of handed over to you, an immense amount of trust has been handed over to you as a, an employer sponsored health plan to provide benefits that quite literally when people are, have been handed a, a life and death diagnosis, they don't oh. really have to worry about who's in and out of network no. and where am I, am I gonna be able to get the best doctor? Am I gonna be able to afford my, my medication? So, right. you know, I think all the things that we've talked about, the fiduciary approach, et cetera, but at the end of the day, the human element is so important. You know, put yourself in the shoe. If, if you had a child who had substance use disorder and needed help immediately, what would you want? Mm. What would you want your experience to be, um, or not? Mm. Be? 
And it's probably not remembering, you know, first and foremost, I have to call my insurance company to get a prior authorization. Um, it's where do right. I get help? So where do I go? Who do I call? Element. I, I love that. What a terrific way to, to finish. This has been wonderful. Thank you for joining us today and for sharing all of this. Um, if someone wanted to reach out to you to learn more, to get your advice on something, what, mm -hmm. what would be the best way to do so? So I'm very active on LinkedIn, um, Chris okay. Deacon. Um, and then I also, uh, you can email me at cdeacon at versanconsulting.com. That's V-E-R-S-A-N consulting.com. That's marvelous. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that will be included also in the show notes uh, for, for all of those listening. Um, thanks to the audience for, for listening in here. And please send the link to this episode to any friends who might be able to benefit from the great advice that we've just uh, been able to hear today. And thank you for listening in to Broken Benefits. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.